Hello, everybody. I'm Claire, and I'm going to be chairing this fabulous session, which is Geopolitics, Peace and Nuclear Issues. Welcome to the panel. Um, I'm really excited to be having this discussion uh, right now. I feel like yesterday, um, some of you might have been in um, Giz's session on nonviolence, uh, which was a kind of a discussion group about our internal processes and how we can be more, um, stick to our, I guess, pillars, non-violent pillar um, in our internal processes. And so I think this session now is an opportunity to think about it more in terms of our um, international policy. And we've got some fabulous, uh, fabulous panellists. So first off, we're going to start with Sue, Dr. Sue Wareham. And I told Sue I probably wouldn't do this, but she's got so many hats that I can't help but talk about them all. Um, so she's, I think, just become president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, but yay! <laughs> but hold your applause because also she is a um, Nobel Peace Prize winner, <laughs> along with many others, uh, for ICANN. <laughs> And um, she also has an, a number of other hats, which is the Australians for War Powers Reform and also the International Physicians for the Prevention of War. And I say all this because I often see Sue up at Parliament House, because I work for Richard, and I never know what hat she's going to be wearing. And so, but she just does a phenomenal amount. So really, thanks so much, Sue. And I'll hand over to you. Thank you very much, Claire. Um, most of that was untrue. Um, but yeah, maybe I do need a collection of hats to wear. <laughs> um, anyway, I called this um, this talk my part of this session. Uh, let's stop going to war. But um, I think I should have called it "Let's stop going to war" and "Let's get rid of nuclear weapons" because I'll be talking about both of those um, things, um, and along the way, acknowledging other people who've made huge efforts in this. Um, including people at this conference. Now, um, Australia has been constantly at war for 16 years, which I'm sure you're aware of, and this is by far the longest stretch that Australia has been continuously at war. It's become the normal state of affairs for us, so people growing up in Australia now would think, that, well, that's just what countries do, they're always at war. Uh, we commemorate warfare as if it's the most important thing that our country ever does. Um, we spend huge sums of money on going to war and preparing to go for war. And the sum currently is $95 million every day. $95 million every day is our military budget. I call it military budget, not a defence budget for a particular reason. Even though the 2016 Defence White Paper um, said that the prospect of Australia being in invaded in the foreseeable future um, is remote. So imagine what we could do with $95 million a day if we put that into other areas such as climate change action and a host of other things. At the same time, our capacity for diplomacy has steadily been eroded over recent years to the point where Australia really doesn't have much concept of responding to conflict other than in an armed fashion, either by um, warfare or threats of warfare. Our foreign aid budget has been totally slashed and that uh, could have been built to or increased to build up communities around the globe. Australia is now selling weapons to Saudi Arabia with Saudi Arabia's terrible history of human rights abuses including its bombing of Yemen and our government is seeking to increase our weapons exports uh, generally as if they're no different from any other commodity that we might want to export. And we're told that this is all about jobs. Now, even if we had no, uh, other, no other objections to selling weaponry 
and if we had no, no other objections to what's in fact a killing industry, the government, um, if they want to talk about jobs, they should in fact show us the figures. How many jobs do we get per billion dollars of military spending compared to the same spent on, say, health or education or public transport or something? But they don't. I don't think the figures exist. And if they did exist, evidence from elsewhere indicates that we would in fact get far more jobs from areas other than military spending. We underfund our schools and universities to the point where these institutions um, find um, offers of funding from weapons industries um, almost irresistible. Um, they accept it. So universities, young scientists are attracted to what is in fact the, the killing industry. And Australia's complicity with US war making is so strong that even if an Australian government took a decision for us not to tag along with the next US war, which is very unlikely, but even if such a decision were taken in practical terms, it would be very difficult for Australia um, to distance ourselves and withdraw all cooperation. So why does all of this matter? And I'm going to sort of apologise for telling you all how to suck eggs and because I know you know this but let's remind ourselves of some of the um, impacts of warfare and why this does matter and why all these things are connected. Um, so war destroys the environment with its bombing, toxic chemicals, movement of troops over fragile ecosystems uh, and deliberate acts of environmental sabotage uses up vast amounts of fossil fuel, creates humanitarian disasters, including floods of refugees. There are currently over 65 million people displaced by armed conflict and persecution. War provides a cover for human rights abuses, which are much more likely to occur in times of war, including sexual crimes, and they're much more likely to have a spotlight on them in times of warfare. War squanders economic resources. Currently, global military spending is $1.7 trillion annually. Um, and meanwhile, the wars that Australia is engaging in are making us less secure. We're creating more enemies and making us less secure, and yet we keep on doing it. And I think one of the most insidious aspects about warfare um, is that it distracts our attention from the big issues that really need global cooperation, particularly climate action. And there are a lot of others, but particularly that one. War is simply a distraction. There's another aspect of warfare um, that should, should concern us, and that's the fact that um, in Australia, going to war is, is a decision that can be made by one person, the Prime Minister, which is totally undemocratic, anti-democratic. In uh, 2003, you all know, of course, that John Howard made a decision that we would be involved in the illegal and catastrophic invasion um, of Iraq, and the consequence of that are uh, playing out still and will for a long time. But since 2014, again, decisions for renewed deployments to Iraq, Syria, the latest one is the Philippines, they're all made with zero debate in Parliament. I don't mean little debate, zero debate. We go to war here, there, somewhere else, and there's zero debate in our national Parliament. So none of our elected representatives, let alone the public, have an opportunity to ask really critical questions such as, What's the objective of this proposed deployment? Um, what's the strategy? What are the likely human costs? Who's going to look after the civilians? How many are likely to be? Who's going to pay for looking after them? Where? Um, what's the exit strategy? What are the other economic costs? And what's the legality? None of these questions um, are asked in our parliament because there's no opportunity. So there's a growing movement for this to change, and I have some brochures over here for Australians for War Powers Reform, um, if you're interested. 
And I want to pay particular tribute um, to the magnificent efforts of Scott Ludlam um, on this issue. Um, truly magnificent, um, and Scott's staff. And um, also, interestingly, before Scott, um, Andrew Bartlett um, had a, a um, War Powers Bill. It was a different name. Scott would know the name. So it's essential that um, governments are held accountable for sending Australians off to kill and be killed uh, on our behalf. And it's essential that we start talking about warfare given Australia's complicity in just about every US war. Um, now, Richard Di Natale and other Greens have made excellent statements um, in Parliament, um, which have been very, very valuable, um, and I don't want to downplay those. But in recent years, um, when surveys come around about Greens issues, it's pretty disappointing to note that often war and peace issues don't even rate a mention on where Greens' priorities should be. So I'm hoping that that might change. Um, and in implying that we need to raise the profile of war and peace issues, um, I'm not for one moment suggesting that um, that we play off issues again against one another because all these things are connected. Um, but I think we need to um, in increase the pressure for a radical rethink of the way in which Australia goes to war and the fact that we are basically addicted to warfare. And we need to raise questions about these things in whatever forum we can. So um, I'm going to say a little now um, specifically about nuclear weapons. And I'm going to do that because there are two things that threaten the planet as we know it. One of them is climate change and the other is nuclear weapons. There are about 15,000 nuclear weapons um, still. I'm sure you know that. Uh, and the vast majority of them are in the US uh, and Russia in those two countries. But there are seven other countries and I'm sure you could all name them. Any use of a single nuclear weapon would be catastrophic with very little humanitarian response possible for any survivors. And that's been widely recognised by a majority of governments um, in recent years in a series of conferences that um, had the title The Humanitarian Impact of Nuclear Weapons. And the conclusion of these conferences, which were both government and civil society working together, conclusion was that these weapons must never be used again. Australia has refused to state that nuclear weapons must never be used again under any circumstances. Majority of governments have. Australia has refused to support that statement. Studies have indicated that a nuclear war between, say, India and Pakistan would be likely to cause a nuclear winter, lasting up to a decade with widespread crop failures and famine on a global scale. The risk of nuclear weapons use, either by decision or accidentally, is higher now than it's been for decades. Chatham House in the UK lists 13 instances since the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 when nuclear weapons were very nearly launched. And if you haven't seen the film The Man Who Saved the World, I won't go into it now for time reasons, The Man Who Saved the World, about an incident in Russia in 1983, I think it was. It's a terrific film. I can tell you about it if you want. And the Canberra Commission in 1996, which is a, a Labor initiative, concluded that the notion that nuclear weapons can be retained in perpetuity and never used, either accidentally or by decision, defies credibility. And the conclusion was that the weapons must be eliminated. But I want to stress, um, a situation is not hopeless. 
I think someone once said, a situation is hopeless, we must go to the next step. So maybe that's a... Um, Maybe it's too pessimistic a way of looking at it. There's one thing that gives me um, a lot of heart. There's very significant evidence that the reason that nuclear weapons haven't been used again since 1945 is the fact that public opinion wouldn't tolerate it and leaders know that. Now, we can't rely on that taboo against using the weapons lasting forever because it's not going to last forever. But it does give us heart that um, all of us, civil society, have already played a huge part and we need to continue doing that in making sure that these weapons are not used and that they are eliminated. And there was another major achievement this year which I'm sure you've heard about, which was the adoption by the UN in July of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And this came about after a, a long civil society campaign over about a decade, um, particularly by ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, um, working with supportive governments. And I want to acknowledge here um, and sincerely thank Felicity Ruby, who's at the conference but not in this room at the moment. Felicity played, it, um, played a huge role in the initial setting up of ICANN, um, as she does with so many things. And I think she sleeps about one hour a day and others. Scott also. I think I'll come to you later, Scott. Um, <laughs> the Australian government... Um, did its utmost to undermine and try to derail the process that led to the adoption of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. They tried unsuccessfully, but they tried. They tried hard. This has been a very heartening illustration of civil, civil society changing the discourse and establishing a new global norm. These weapons are delegitimised. Every, any country, every country will have to choose do you want to obey international law or do you want to be on the side of the outlaws? So the Australian government will have to make that choice. Um, at the moment, they're choosing to be on the side of the outlaws. Anyway, we'll keep working on that. One of the key things that helped to progress this agenda of the prohibition and elimination of nuclear weapons was the focus on the human impacts, um, which meant in this context um, promoting the voices of the hibakusha, the A-bomb survivors in Japan, um, and also in our region the survivors of the British um, tests in Maralinga and elsewhere in Australia and also the Pacific Island testings um, by US, France and UK. Those voices were critical in this campaign. The next 12 months or so is going to be critical also. We need to get as many countries as possible signing and ratifying the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. This is the most powerful tool that our movement has had for a long time to put pressure on the countries with the, uh, with the weapons. And they know that. The US has fought back strongly against this process and Australia has done the dirty work for the US at the UN. So we need to keep the pressure on the Australian government to sign this treaty and to abandon the ridiculous notion that Australia needs nuclear weapons to protect us while uh, preaching disarmament to other countries such as North Korea. And we need to keep pressure on Labor over this. Um, Labor has a policy in support of the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty, but they've been pretty quiet since the treaty was adopted. So we need to keep pressure on Labor to sign the treaty if and when they form government. 
So I want to thank the Greens uh, for being consistently strong supporters um, of this treaty process, which has been enormously valuable. Um, thank you, Scott. You've played a, a huge role in this, and Scott's wonderful staff, and I see Trish and Claire, and there might be others here too. So thank you. Yeah. So if you'd like to keep up to date with this particular campaign, um, have a look on the ICANN website. And if you're not on the mailing list, that would be terrific if you'd like to add one more to your 200 emails a day. <laughs> um, I think I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Thanks, Sue. It was sort of, for me at least, equal parts hope and kind of sobering facts. But uh, one thing I do think about, and I think this is a point that you've made a few times, Scott, was that... Um, you know, in the UK elections, we came so close to having um, a prime minister elected who actually is a was a nuclear disarmament activist. And so, um, you know, it just goes to show how quickly things can change overnight, potentially. Um, so hope is not lost. Anyway, next uh, speaker is Dr. Adam Bronowski. Um, so he is um, at the ANU and he's got quite a long kind of list of achievements, but in summary, um, he works at the History and Language Centre at School of Culture, History and Language at the College of Asia and the Pacific, and he's also written a book which was out last year, I think, called Cultural Responses to Occupation in Japan, The Performing Body During the Cold War and After, and he is talking about the somewhat scary a topic in my view anyway about dismantling the nuclear oil and dollar nexus for a thriving planetary commons so commons again welcome adam thanks claire and it's a privilege to be here with so many uh, seasoned um political campaigners and very uh very astute uh, political thinkers and uh, I'm going to share some of my research. Recently, uh, last three or four years, I've been looking at the Fukushima nuclear disaster, um, social and cultural responses to it from the ground up and that led me into uh, more nuclear history, Australia's involvement in uranium trade. So the uh, Australian uranium was in the Fukushima nuclear reactors. Um, and also the broader nuclear industry. So I was essentially, in this talk, I want to look at um, maybe take a slightly different angle to the one that Sue is taking, however, in uh, very much in solidarity with ICANN and with the excellent work that the Greens have done. So this is an uh, image you can see in 1900 of Europe with its various nation states all rivaling each other for territory and resources, which is what, what I want to get at. So at this historic moment in which the world order is shifting, this uh, world order that we see emerging in 1900 in Europe is, is, is now being challenged. Uh, we face possibly the greatest challenges humanity has ever faced in the present. And so it's important to me to understand um, the systems that we've established and uh, what they mean. So my focus in particular is the permanent wars that have been ongoing since the onset of the 20th century, but particularly since 1945, which have been integral to the economic and political order that we have. Aside from being illegal and unethical and suicidal, these wars, particularly with nuclear weapons, uh, distract, as Sue was saying, deny from any serious coordinated international response to climate disruption. 
So despite the mediated narratives and our very short memories and attention span, particularly in politics, we know that our economies, even digital economies, rely on oil and petroleum-based activities. We know that oil, control over its distribution and finance in particular, has been central, a causal root of these wars since 1945, which I'm going to explore. We are now seeing a major shift in world order that essentially began, this first world order began when the US, US was handed Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam and the Philippines after the defeat of Spain in the Spanish-American War in 1998. The spectacular rise of the US empire, which it is an empire, was driven by its own abundant supply of oil and also these new foreign holdings in the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean called the Western Hemisphere. The construction of this empire was underpinned by the ge geopolitical theory of the world island. This theory was that if if you have uh, you, you essentially have uh, a world island uh, which maritime powers could project power and encircle and contain the rimlands, then they could stifle any rival power emerging that was from the Eurasian heartland, and which is essentially Russia and China. This, this, uh, the US did this as it expanded its forward presence to control geostrategic geostrategic land nodes along supply corridors for the vital resources to the largest market in the world, which is Western Europe. So then, in uh, just to cut, chop through, speed through in 1945, um, so just before, uh, just before at uh, the end of the Second World War, the United States had secured concessions in Dharan in the Saudi Peninsula in uh, 1938 and they set up a military base there and they consolidated operations east of the Suez. So while the uh, Soviet Red Army bore the brunt of the Nazi military machine on the Eastern Front, the Allies managed to capture the oil supply routes which meant they could cut off Japanese and Nazi forces leading to their defeat. This strategy essentially has continued but been augmented in the process of US empire building since then. So with much of Europe destroyed and serious poverty at the end of World War II in Europe, the US had over 50% of GDP guaranteed oil supply from Saudi Arabia, one of the greatest material prizes in the world history is what it was called, 70% of world monetary gold and the US dollar was fixed as the world currency reserve. So with this the US could reshape the post-World War order in its favour, which it did. Uh, not only by, I'm just going to show you some related images as I go along, which is, sort of suggests what I'm going to talk about, um, which it did, not only by investing in its own technologies that were petroleum-based, but also by setting up NATO in Europe, guaranteeing energy and privileged bilateral trade through the Marshall Plan to, to UK, West Germany in particular, but other Western European countries, and also on the eastern side of the, of the Eurasian heartland, which is in Japan, South Korea, Taiwan and the Philippines. It also set up US military bases through bilateral agreements with those countries. The US Cold War Division and Alliance architecture is what it's called, formalised uh, in 1951, essentially divided the globe into uh, US command and control sectors. So here you have the oil production uh, so important in Saudi Arabia and Iran and Iraq in 1945. And then you have this uh, division line system centred here. And this is how the world was perceived uh, from the US perspective. This is your central command structure. Um, so uh, 
US bases were set up in Western Europe on one side and in East Asia on the other side of the supercontinent, ostensibly to deter Soviet and Chinese advance, but in actuality to enable force projection into Soviet and Chinese territories. So during the Korean War and the American War in Vietnam, for example, the US threatened to use nuclear weapons many times on North Korea, PRC and Vietnam. By 1960, the US had the capacity to win a nuclear war um, uh, through targeting and destroying most Soviet and Chinese cities at once with a nuclear attack, ostensibly, again, in retaliation. It's uh, understandable, although maybe not uh, commendable, that many nations have perceived nuclear weapons as a key factor in determining uh, the international hierarchy of states and, and that they have been used to blackmail, intimidate, gain leverage and can compel conformity with the possessor's interests. Only by 1964 had all five uh, permanent members of the uh, Security Council come into possession of nuclear weapons, and only by the mid-70s had the Soviets really caught up with the US in terms of sophistication and scale uh, to establish what they saw as an equilibrium of power. Kissinger also called it that. A further four nations acquired nuclear capabilities since then. Um, they went rogue, essentially outside the UN uh, structure to do that, and five European nations and four or so Asia-Pacific nations are beneficiaries of the US nuclear umbrella. So uh, US bases are central to this because they store and carry nuclear weapons. They also surround territories with large fossil fuel reserves and strategic transport corridors. They provide more intimate access for interventions and proxy wars, economic warfare, information and psychological warfare. Upon governments, authoritarian or otherwise, uh, particularly those who would seek to nationalise their own resources, control their markets uh, and uh, defend their sovereignty. So it's not a surprise that many states have sought both nuclear energy and nuclear weapons to join the nuclear power club, so-called, and to, in to increase their international uh, leverage with a chance for greater security and independence. Security being uh, a loaded term, of course. So in the early 1970s, with the US sunk in debt from uh, Vietnam, the resurgent economies of Germany, ja uh, Japan and France, flush with trade dollars, pushed for the US Federal Reserve to return their gold security deposits. To maintain the primacy of the US dollar, instead of devaluing it, the Nixon administration withdrew from the gold-backed system and the OPEC nations responded by placing an oil embargo, sending the price of oil through the roof. And enormous profits flowed to OPEC nations and to the oil cartels, mainly US. The US then set up a financial mechanism with Saudi Arabia to recycle US dollars in the form of petrodollars, backed by the oil supply from Saudi Arabia through the Federal Reserve Bank. So Saudis became the major creditor of the US Federal Reserve. All nations, OPEC nations then followed this lead and agreed to trade oil exclusively in US dollars. Major US and UK banks, which exchanged foreign currencies for US dollars for the purchase of oil, also profited significantly. And then, so in return for the Gulf states uh, providing this security to the US and this financial mechanism, the largest weapon co weapons contracts with US manufacturers uh, proceeded to uh, flow to countries like Saudi Arabia, as Sue was saying. 
So this is the real meaning of the phrases that you hear, mediated phrases that you hear given by US leaders about free flow of oil at stable prices or freedom of na navigation and access to commercial markets or maintaining global stability. Effectively, with the US dollar pegged to the Saudi oil, the US was no longer bound by debt and it could engage in expensive wars and military expenditure because it could endlessly print money. So, uh, 1979, however, marked the, uh, the, the reverse swing of the pendulum. China's open-door reform began, the Tengus oil reserves in the Caspian Sea were discovered, Islamist jihadism was mobilised by the US in Afghanistan to bog down the Soviet Union for 10 years. Iran was sanctioned for its, for its revolution, uh, while uh, Wahhabist Islamic uprising at Mecca was not. Saddam Hussein was installed by the CIA and aided and supplied for a, an eight-year war against Iran. The Iran hostage crisis continued and the Iran-Contra scandal brought down the Qatar uh, presidency and Wahhabism proved useful uh, in Pakistan but also in the soft underbelly of Russia, that is to work at destabilising in che Chechnya, Dagestan, Albania and Kosovo. It was also the moment when the Reagan-Thatcher administrations came in and implemented neoliberalism, essentially anti-social policy, small government, privatised public service, deregulation, weakened unions and austerity measures. So it comes to the next phase of empire building, which is uh, the disintegration of the Soviet bloc in 1991. The US and its allies had the opportunity to disarm, to implement US, uh, UN uh, disarmament uh, regulations and to denuclearize, but they didn't take the opportunity. Instead, they pushed up to Russia's borders and colorful uh, revolutions were fermented in Yugoslavia and uh, other former Soviet states which were rich in oil territory or just geostrategic territory. That same year, when Iraq was sanctioned and attacked for its illegal invasion of Kuwait, it was not about stopping dictators or saving babies, as we were told, or even keeping local gas prices down in the US, it was in fact to maintain this hegemony, the US dollar primacy. The US wars in, in Afghanistan and Iraq in 2001 and 3, less than an act of revenge for the September 11 attacks, although certainly about that, it provided the pretext to institute a new doctrine of preemptive intervention in a dubiously named global war on terror. We should have known that this was a move to seize strategic control over fossil fuels in Iraq and mineral wealth in Afghanistan. And we, uh, we should have known that it was also about uh, continuing to contest the oil corridors in Central Asia. Um, uh, yeah, I can talk to some of these images a bit more if you like. But uh, one example might be, uh, so the Central... Central Asian uh, corridor is essentially coming from the Tengus gas field in the Caspian Sea that was discovered in 1979. And it's about controlling that distribution, which could go to Russia in the west, to Iranian clients in the south, and to China, uh, Chinese Xinjiang in uh, west China, which is a crucial hub for the transport of oil and gas and the development of west China. It's also got a large Muslim population. So uh, you're seeing this kind of conflation of uh, Islamic jihadist insurgency and the control of oil. And there's much, much intrigue there and a lot of information that you can find out about that. One case in point is Syria. 
Many of you may think that Syria is run by a dictator who brutally suppressed a democratic uprising that was spurred by a drought due to climate change in 2011. That's the narrative that we've been sold in the West. Uh, while there was a drought and certainly a peaceful demonstration that was complaining about conditions in Syria, in 2009, before that, President Assad had rejected a $10 billion pipeline offer uh, from Qatar to run through Saudi Arabia, through Syria and to Europe. Instead, he signed off in 2012 after what he saw in Libya on the PARS pipeline from Iran through Syria to Lebanon to Europe. Ever since 1947, we know that there have been numerous CIA attempts to install a Syrian government that would be conducive to accepting the Trans-Arabia pipeline from Saudi Arabia through Syria. As a landline would be cheaper, cheaper than going by sea, avoiding the Suez costs, avoiding any disruption that might happen with a war with Iran through the Straits of Hormuz. Uh, whoever could transport the gas and oil to Europe would essentially be able to compete for a significant share in, uh, in the European market and take a cut from Russia. The US and UK would prefer its allies, uh, Saudi and Qatar, rather than Iran, obviously. So in 2012, what worked in Afghanistan was tried again in Syria. Less about democracy and dictators again, more about control. This was a low-intensity destabilising conflict using irregular mercenary troops, proxies and state-sponsored terrorists to overthrow the Assad government. Whatever you think about the Assad government, it was democratically elected. And it is also, more crucially for the US, an ally of Iran and Russia, and to create a supply corridor through Syria under the control of the US and its allies. This would explain why both the US and UK governments have made unprecedented arms sales to Saudi Arabia recently. So isolating and surrounding Iran is the main game, uh, as part of a larger plan to re-territorialise the region. And there are plans for that. I've seen the documents. Rand has done a study about re-carving that area uh, to its advantage with these uh, corridors. Um, when, uh, for example, the embargo, the trade embargo with Iran was lifted in 2015 by Obama, uh, Saudi immediately glutted the world oil market um, with oil by for forcing down oil prices. It was, this wasn't just to compete with Re Russia and Venezuela, but also Iran, which could potentially um, uh, enter the market in Europe and uh, gain a lot of profit and develop its own technology, which would then compete for hegemon hegemony in the Middle East with the Saudi Arabia. So Iran is, a, in, is an NPT signatory with no nuclear weapons and which it claims it doesn't intend to procure. It would be anti-Islamic. Um, and yet the sanctions uh, were put on it anyway. And this is what we're seeing with Trump right now. Um, uh, in, in, together with Israel, trying to put more pressure on Iran to stop its development and its ability to defend itself defend itself again, used carefully um, in terms of nuclear weapons in particular. So on the eastern side of the uh, Eurasian supercontinent, you have uh, Korea. And so these are the pipelines running from Iran on one hand and Saudi Arabia on the other. Again, more pipelines in that area. So you have uh, basing, US basing, Almost every country in the world has U.S. military person, uh, personnel stationed in it. Uh, nearly every country, maybe not Myanmar. 
So here's your major trade routes of oil, fossil fuels, and your choke points in the Strait of Hormuz and Strait of Malacca, Bab el-Mandeb, which is Yemen, the conflict in Yemen at the moment is all about controlling that choke point. Um, so we come to, well, I'll get to that in a minute, but basically North Korea lost its security guarantee from the Soviet Union in 1991 and it sought direct talks with the US and offered to end its nuclear program, nascent nuclear program, in return for economic aid in 1994 and again in 2005. The US abrogated its commitments as it sees more value in retaining the status quo in Northeast Asia with military bases in South Korea, Japan, Okinawa, Guam and a foothold on the bridge to the Eurasian mainland. It's fair to say that North Korea, along, uh, although far from pure, has been driven to continue de developing a nuclear, nuclear capability to stop the invasion that has happened in places like Syria and Libya. So the key points here are that in 2002, the Bush administration withdrew from the anti-ballistic missile treaty. It then began to deploy a missile defence shield uh, surrounding Korean Peninsula and China, as well as around Russia and Europe. Claimed to be defensive, the missile defence shield can see into China and Russia to detect nuclear weapons storage and launch facilities. So it works basically, you see the nuclear weapons, you then attack them with a first strike, whether it's nuclear or non-nuclear, the missile shield would then block any retaliating missiles that manage to get through that, uh, through that first attack, and then further uh, nuclear weapons would be used to mop up, so to speak, any kind of remaining um, attacking capability in the target country. And this is supported by documents that have been leaked in 2010 by, um, written by Secretary, Secretary of State Clinton announcing uh, that a NATO plan for attacking Russia. And in 2011, Obama also announced the Asia Pacific uh, that the Asia pivot in Canberra to redeploy 60% of US military forces, including missile defence uh, systems to contain China from the Indo-Asia-Pacific littorals. So in these rimland areas in that map that I showed you earlier. This would explain uh, the US withdrawal from the New START Treaty in 2010 with Russia, which was to turn megatons into megawatts. And it would explain the 1.5 now tri trillion nuclear modernization program under Obama, Nobel, Nobel Prize winner Obama, and its 15 to 20 unarmed ICBM uh, tests between 2011 and 2017. You don't hear a lot about those. You hear about North Korean tests, but you don't hear about American tests. What the North Koreans are doing is responding. And it would also explain US-NATO prepositioning of heavy artillery and troops along Russian eastern borders and in Jordan, and by extension, why the US is prepositioning the missile defence shields in South Korea. The long game is essentially to attack and break up both China and Russia, any uh, rival power that might emerge from the heartland. India and Japan are also part of this military build-up, as, uh, as is Australia. India, unlike Iran, is not an NPT signatory, and yet it's been privileged with nuclear trade um, and been allowed to develop its nuclear arsenal without uh, too much punishment uh, through UN regulations, certainly no sanctions, unlike Iran and North Korea. Um, it's because it has the capability to challenge the, expanse, uh, the, the, the trade and the, the military uh, expansion of China that I'm showing you in this Chinese-Russia uh, uh, trade system that is now underway. 
Japan, like Australia, is also a nuclear uh, is also an NPT signatory and benefits from the U.S. nuclear umbrella. Japan has maintained a hedge capacity, however, to rapidly develop nuclear weapons in self-defense if it needs to. It it possesses the largest plutonium stockpile of any non-nuclear uh, weapons nation and hosts U.S. nuclear weapons. The U.S. has been pushing it lately to acquire its own nuclear weapons, and it is a close partner of the U.S. in interoperable missile and military operations. It has used aggressive defensive North Korean rhetoric and DPRK missile testing to justify this expansion uh, in its military budget and also to change its constitution. And now it's considering procuring at a first strike capability that's under the Abe government. So in overall, in this struggle over world order, China and Russia are attempting to establish an alternative polycentric or multipolar system of mirror structures. The first is an independent energy and goods distribution system, pipelines from Russia and Iran and a Belt and Road Initiative from China through the world island along the rimlands and ports to access the shipping lanes and the blue oceans, but essentially to avoid the choke points that the US has established in the Cold War Division Alliance system. Second point is that independent financial distribution system, a gold-backed petro-yuan to, to purchase oil and gas from supply nations and to convert that foreign currencies into yuan instead of the US dollar. And the suppliers would be Saudi Arabia, Russia, Venezuela, Iran. They're currently negotiating with Saudi Arabia. So the third is independent military security, which would be China, Russia and Iran coalition to prevent the disruption along these corridors via multiple means, suppression of mercenaries, proxies, Islamist insurgents in West China, etc. So we can see that geopolitical, oil and gas, finance, petrodollars backed by gold or by, by the Saudi oil, and geostrategy, US bases, well, military bases, nuclear and non-nuclear weapon systems, all work hand in glove, they're interconnected. It drives towards monopoly control over this compound form of power relations, energy, financial, military. And this is uh, at the root, I would say, of the conflicts that we've seen over the past hundred years or so. And it's also the cause, of course, of the great ecological and human chaos. So these relations are incompatible with the health of the planetary commons uh, that sustains human and non-human existence. And it is these forms of power that need to change if we're going to seek a more peaceful world to live in. And it is little wonder that the seemingly innocuous systems of renewable energy re uh, gen generation and its distribution, pricing and use are at the front line of social and political contestation in the present. So, thanks very much. Thanks, Adam. That was really fascinating. And I imagine people will have a lot of questions um, about that, particularly about, you know, the role renewables can play and um, essentially how we, how we change that kind of power structure, which is a bit scary. Um, anyway, uh, our next speaker is Felicity Gray. Um, so, Flick is... Um, at ANU doing her PhD in nonviolent interventions in conflict. Um, so I understand she'll be talking about that in her um, speech today. And prior to that, she worked for quite a long time for two leaders of the Greens, mainly Christine Milne and also for Richard Di Natale. And she's also Devonport's, one of Devonport, Tasmania's greatest exports. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how many exports Devonport has, but um, 
Yeah, so thank you for having me. Um, as Claire said, um, unlike Adam and Sue, I'm a baby academic. Um, I don't have a doctor yet, but um, I hope what I have to share is, is useful. Um, as Claire said, I'm doing my, my PhD research on um, nonviolent forms of intervention. And international intervention is something that I feel like the party has struggled a lot with in the past. Um, it's often a sticking point for our membership and we often come to, um, to loggerheads sometimes about the way that we deal with um, humanitarian crises um, and what that looks like from an intervention perspective. Um, so the, the politics around nonviolence um, and humanitarian intervention were one of the biggest conundrums that I faced as a staffer. And often what would happen is that we would invade Iraq and Syria, which we did while I was a staffer, and um, the media would show up to the office and they would say to Christine or Richard, what's your position? And rightly, we were the only party putting... Um, being a voice against military intervention again and again. And then inevitably the question will be, what's your alternative? Um, and that's a really hard question to answer. And um, often it's an unfair question to pose in the sense that I don't know that the Australian Greens have an answer um, for what else we can do about every conflict around the world that we come into contact with. But what I'm trying to do is explore maybe some of those options that, that we might be able to put on the table. Um, so today I'm going to talk a little bit about how the Greens in Australia and around the world have, have approached that tension um, between um, humanitarian intervention and our commitment to non-violence. And I'm going to talk about some of the ways that we might walk, work towards um, active responses to those conflicts that remain founded in, in principles of peace and non-violence. So and no one in this room I'm sure is unaware of the humanitarian impacts of conflict. Um, right now, you can see it almost in real time. So we have drone footage of Rohingya exiting um, Myanmar at the moment, um, fleeing ethnic cleansing, and, and we, can, we can see that and we can observe that. And of course, we feel an impetus to do something about that. Um, and so those humanitarian imperatives around the world, they're as pressing as ever. And in responding to those crises, a commitment to nonviolence underpins a green response. Um, so our policy platform, which I've, I've quoted up here, obviously under the broader um, pillar of peace and nonviolence, um, says that we must act constructively <laughs> within UN-supported operations and use humanitarian or non-military measures to prevent and oppose those humanitarian crises. And there's an inherent tension in that, I think. It seems straightforward, but when you put it into practice, principles of nonviolence often stand in tension um, with our commitment to human rights and our commitment to social justice. And how we reconcile those is a conundrum. And it's something that, that the party and green parties around the world have really um, struggled to, to deal with. What that's often meant is that actually we end up putting positions that are in conflict with our commitment to nonviolence. There are a lot of examples of Greens around the world struggling to wrestle that commitment um, to nonviolence alongside perceived or real immediate humanitarian need, mostly resulting in Green politicians justifying military intervention. So um, this guy here, that's Joska Fischer. Um, so 
In May 1999, at the German Greens Conference, he was the foreign minister of Germany and he was instrumental um, in, in the role that Germany played in the military intervention in Serbia. And so he said, um, he justified that involvement saying that, for me, Auschwitz is unique, but I adhere to two principles, never again war, never again Auschwitz, never again genocide, never again fascism, for me, both belong together. And with that, a green politician took Germany to war for the first time since World War II. And similarly, the French Greens argued for an international police force charged with intervening on the ground to establish peace and security. So we're constantly wrestling with these two principles. More recently, and I'm going to murder the pronunciation, this is Jam Odzemir. He's a green politician again in Germany. He publicly supported a weapons transfer to the, to the Kurdish uh, forces in Iraq. He said, <clears throat> quote, and this is one of my favourites, um, the Kurds need to defend themselves and they do not do so with yoga mats under their arms. So even a green politician <laughs> is framing a non-violent response as something that you do with yoga mats. Um, I think that's a bit simplified. Um, but it does reflect... I think a broader perception of what nonviolent responses to conflict are. People um, conflate them with yoga mats. Or uh, recently I was at a round table um, with some very senior UN peacekeeping representatives. And when I explained my project, I said I work on nonviolent forms of intervention. He said, oh, well, you're not going to hear much about nonviolence here. Um, we're not in the business of hugging teddy bears. And that's, you know, the UN that our policy platform says we should work constructively with. <laughs> so obviously the, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> um, and, and these are struggles that we've, that we've dealt with internally here in Australia as well. Um, as I'm sure everyone in this room knows, the, how we respond to mass atrocities and conflict in a way that aligns with our commitments um, is something that we've had intense debates around in the party. So, for example, Bob Brown was very public in his support of the military intervention on behalf of East Timor against the Indonesian occupation. And similarly, as I'm sure many of us remember, we had some very frank and very fierce discussions about a no-fly zone over Libya in 2011. And it was something that the party really wrestled with. And I don't know that, that those questions have been resolved and there's a reason for that. It's, it's a complicated issue. And, and an answer for one conflict cannot be cookie-cutter transferred onto another. But I think it is something that we have to be willing to have hard debates around. Um, and, and understanding that ethically, you know, it's not cut and dry. We have competing ethical commitments that we're trying to uphold. I don't really have an answer, but I have some suggestions. As I said earlier, whenever Christine or Richard or Scott were hit with the question, well, you oppose military intervention, what do you suggest we do? What's your alternative? And that's a really big question. And it's an important one. And in my view, there isn't a clear answer. And that's part of the reason why I'm doing the research that I'm doing, um, to try and better understand alternatives so that we have something to put on the table in some of those circumstances. I think if we've learned anything um, over the past 30 years of humanitarian intervention, it's that you can't overlay cookie cutter responses. Um, intervention 
um, responses uh, on on specific conflicts. Each has its own context, its own political, economic um, complexities, and to understand those is is critical to responding. And so, part of the mistake that, not necessarily the Greens, but but um, actors more generally, is that um, we've we've relayed this framework over. Um, over conflict after conflict and every time it doesn't work and then we wonder why. Um, but in terms, of, in terms of some general principles, there are a few things that I think it's really important that we discuss as a party and that we have a public discussion about here in Australia, particularly as Sue was saying, when we don't talk about war and conflict very often publicly and we certainly don't talk about it in the parliament um, when we're putting troops on the ground. So the first, I think, um, is what I'm looking at with my PhD research, and that's prioritising local responses and looking at local forms of resistance. Even in Syria, for example, there were local communities responding in non-violent fashions to um, occupations of um, the various terrorist groups that were active there. And I'm not saying that that they themselves um, alone have the capacity to resist that kind of violence, but we should be looking at the tools that they already have and that they're already implementing and what we can do to help them from a local perspective. And that um, those, those kinds of strategies have been effective elsewhere. So, for example, in the Philippines, local peace zones have been really successful and they're community-led initiatives that we can support but we're not going in as external actors telling people how they need to resolve their conflict. <laughs> a lot of the organisations that I'm looking at take that very seriously and, um, and won't go into a conflict zone unless they're invited by a local partner, unless they can see a role that they can pay, play in, in supporting the work that they're already doing. Um, and so I can talk about this a little bit later, but things like unarmed civilian peacekeeping, um, <clears throat> where local and international volunteers... Um, are trained to act as intermediaries um, without arms and to de-escalate conflict in a non-violent way. Um, and as far as I can tell so far, it works. And when I was thinking about this, I, from a Green perspective, I think building relationships with local Greens parties in the region, which we do through, through our Global Issues Group and through our International Development Committee, building on that work and making sure that we have local contacts in those communities that we can look to to tell us and advise us in terms of how we can best assist, that's really important. Um, we certainly don't have all of the answers here from Australia. <coughs> A pivot to prevention. And I think this links in really nicely with what Adam was talking about in that and, and the things that we have spoken about all conference is that we need to be really vocal about prevention. If we can prevent violence from occurring in the first place, then we don't get to the point where we're justifying why um, we need to have a military intervention. Um, and I think addressing issues like inequality and climate change and battles over resources um, is an essential part of that prevention strategy. Um, and from an Australian perspective, I know that a lot of work I did with Christine looked at the role that Australian resource companies, particularly mining companies in Africa, were playing um, in fomenting conflict in the areas that they were working. And if we can, um, I guess, act as a preventative from that perspective, that's a contribution. And then finally, um, I think it's really important that there is a willingness to have this debate 
it gets really heated when the military intervention is already on the table. And so having some of these discussions um, prior to that happening as a party um, and as a movement is critical to being able to put a cohesive response forward when it does actually hit the table. Um, and so I thought it was interesting, um, Green Links, who are the Dutch Green Party, they recently had um, a comprehensive open party debate consultation for over a year about the role of nonviolence in their party and the role of intervention in their foreign policy platform. Um, and the results are really interesting. Um, it was actually only a small, less than 10% of the party took a pacifist position, which I thought was really interesting. Also, less than 10% of the party thought that we should be supporting um, actions that are UNSC approved, Security Council approved. But eventually they produced a document that pretty comprehensively tackled the way that they would respond to this in the future. And I think um, being open those, to those debates here as a party and as a movement um, is really important. So I, I, I guess I'll throw it back to Claire and maybe if there's questions. Yeah, thank you. Um, thanks, Flick. That was really interesting. And actually, some of uh, what you were saying was reminding me a bit of earlier this year um, when Trump um, bombed Syria after their use, uh, allegedly Assad's use of chemical weapons, which w was in fact Assad. And I remember we put out a statement really quickly condemning it because it was clearly against international law and it was in fact quite an easy position for us to come to. And then we were the only ones um, saying that. Not even Labor was condemning Trump's actions and I was really shocked by that, but it, it just goes to show um, what a thorny kind of issue it is um, to act against intervention when, when it's really hard to say what the alternative is and when people on the ground are, uh, are suffering. Um, anyway, that's just my reflection. So um, what, I think what might be easier is if you guys all come up and sit on a chair and then um, we can throw it open to questions. I'm sure you probably have heaps of them. So who wants to kick us off? Catherine, is it? Thanks, Catherine. Um, and yeah, thanks to Adam and Felicity too. I, there was a lot of really good stuff that came out here. And um, I think Fel Felicity is, has identified really key things for the Greens. Um, and that is to, um, first one is to prioritise prevention. And um, I, I agree with that. Um, completely, I think the Greens need to be seen to be advocating um, debate in Parliament, advocating a far greater um, budget for diplomacy in Australia. I mean, our, um, the funding for DFAT has just gone down and down as our military spending goes up. So I think we need to be really visible in saying that we need a much greater budget for diplomacy in Australia and for early intervention. I mean, conflicts don't arise in a vacuum. People don't just suddenly say, well, let's have a genocide or um, let's attack this group. There's always a lot that goes on. So I think, but the Greens are seen to be advocating um, much greater action on the part of Australia for recognising conflicts early on and intervention fairly on. Then I, I think, A, um, it might, we could play a role in, um, in preventing the escalation of conflicts. And, and also it puts the Greens in a stronger position when, if and when armed conflict breaks out to, to again put the point that we need to be going back to prevention. And um, 
Felicity's um, point also about prioritising local responses I think is also absolutely key because we go to war in a place that we, we don't know. We don't know the culture, the language, the history, the background. We send in troops and we wonder why it doesn't work. So um, uh, we need to be giving strongest possible support to um, to people who are on the ground in situations where, where there is conflict. And I think there's another, another interesting point for myself is um, in that we're very patient with warfare. We let it go on for years and years and years. It's clearly either getting worse or not helping, and yet we go on doing it. We're very patient, but when it comes to negotiation, we expect to send in negotiations. Okay, you've got a week, come out with a solution that's going to last forever. Um, we need to give negotiation time and, as Felicity said, engage local actors in it and not expect people from outside because people have got to have a, a stake in the outcome and feel that they're represented um, if any outcome is going to uh, going to last. Um, it's probably enough for me. Uh, yeah, so Catherine, I'd probably say that with the... Uh, Iran question, probably, yeah, Iran's been on the cards for a long time. Um, and it's a very powerful country, but it's been under sanctions for decades. Uh, there's a reason why it's got the kind of strong government it has uh, in, in those conditions. You always have to remember that governments that have been put in power uh, by nations are not just because of what's coming from within their own country, but because of the pressures from outside. So you've got, you know, North Korea is another example where you have a very strong military that has been uh, going on for ever since the division of the Korean Peninsula because essentially it doesn't have a peace treaty and it, and it feels threatened. Um, numerous attempts, on, including the Korean War, on invasion and occupation and, and regime change. Iran has been under similar pressure, um, maybe not of the same scale, but quite regular, constant destabilisation campaigns that have been attacking that government. So when we, in the media, have the narrative about how terrible these governments are, dictators, etc., how badly they treat their citizens. We have to take that with a grain of salt within the historical context and within the geopolitical context. If we don't include all of those factors, we can't understand why so-called war breaks out as if suddenly, you know, as if, as if it's smallpox. It's, it's, uh, we are in permanent war. It's part of the economy of, of our US-led um, global capitalist system, which is what I was trying to explain. So if we're going to adopt a policy, I'm, I'm not speaking for the Greens, of course, I, I'm a neophyte in terms of Greens politics really, but uh, I would say that um, the Greens need to do some research in that area so that the naivety can be taken out and you can adopt a more um, strategic and, and incisive approach, understanding what the factors are at play in these wars, why they've emerged, why they're going to continue, no matter what we do. If we back the local supporters, who are they? Who are they being funded by? Who's supporting those local supporters? Even if they're, you know, ordinary democratically seeming people who want independence, like the Kurds, for example, what is the context there? What is the real agenda behind setting up a Kurdish autonomous state, for example? Who wins, who loses? What happens to that, that oil, basically? Look at the CIA documents. <laughs> you can access them. Um, the internet is a wonderful thing. 
It's really, really wonderful. Um, we've never had so much information at our disposal. Uh, that's, you know, they can't completely control it anymore. It's too big. But they're trying, you know. Um, the US government is now saying that uh, foreign uh, media reporting is, is going to be banned in, in the United States. Since when would you have heard that of the leader of the free world? But sure enough, Sputnik and RT are being uh, heavily uh, censored now. So the reason is because they're providing a, an alternative narrative, not because they're, you know, Putin is trying to control the US election, but because there's a narrative that they don't like that is being portrayed. And that narrative, I'm not saying that it's pure, but I'm saying that it's an alternative. We're seeing different facts and different information that's being shared. It's crucial that we educate ourselves. I've done it too. I've, I've learnt an enormous amount from the internet and from CIA documents, but also from these alternative perspectives that come from those countries and take away the dominance that is our very narrow periscopic view that we get of international relations in our media. It's embarrassing how little we know compared to many, many other countries. Questions? I might go to the gentleman with the plain shirt. Oh, right. I, I just wanted to ask about the subs. I mean, you know, so what's your vision on that investment? Um, and, the, and have we been had, you know, with this contract? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, this was, um, again, much like I was saying about military intervention, you know, um, in terms of the membership of the party and the membership... I think it's fair to say of our party room. Um, there was a lot of there was a spectrum of opinion there um, about what to do with that submarine contract. Personally, <laughs> um, I think we have a commitment to peace and nonviolence, and I don't think that we need to be investing billions of dollars in more armaments. Um, but I mean, that's a simplistic analysis, and I guess as Adam's saying the devil is in the detail and you want to be really careful um, with policy like that. But as a general response, um, that's, my, that's my instinct from, from my perspective as a member, I suppose. Well, I can't add much to that. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's a huge amount of money. And I mean, not from a Greens perspective, but from other perspectives, um, people who know these things say, well, what are they for? They're going to be out of date by the time they're in service service anyway. Um, but probably for the Greens, a legitimate question would, would be, well, are we, are, are we just about defending Australia or are we about conducting uh, warfares uh, far afield? And the answer to that is pretty obvious. It's the latter. But I think we need to perhaps make the point that um, most Australians would really... Uh, agree with defending our shores, but don't necessarily agree with um, projecting our, our wars wherever the US wants to go to war, far, far from our own shores. So that would be my view on the submarines. I'd just say that there's $50 billion is a lot of money for um, forward projection of Australian capability in the Indian Ocean um, to, to fight our biggest trading partner. And, uh, you know, w w diplomacy is the cheapest form of defence. So, you know, we, we are not stupid. We can communicate in Chinese and we can negotiate. Uh, China wants to have a good relationship with Australia. Why, sh why shouldn't we be able to do that? Mm. 
Uh, so in, in response, uh, Viswav, thank you. I'd say that the uh, military is not just for killing. Uh, wars are not just for killing. Sorry, the military is a technology that is used for killing, but wars are not just for killing, as I was trying to ask, outline in the paper. They're about a uh, internet, in, interconnected um, global political economy, uh, and they have been intrinsic to... Uh, gaining territory, gaining capital markets, uh, distributing energy, controlling finance, all that stuff. Uh, from the point where I started, which is the beginning of the US empire, but before the British empire was modelled on the same thing. So, so I'd say that, yes, the military defence, uh, the technology could be retooled for responding to emergency situations and uh, peacekeeping, so-called, and... Um, uh, and responding to climate dis dis disruption, um, why not take the you know the killing aspect of it away? Uh, essentially, because that's uh, crucial to the gaining of territory and the, the the domination of anyone who seeks to resist that system. So yeah, so that would be my my response to that. Although all of your suggestions, are, other than that, are wonderful. <laughs> that's what I'd say. Yeah, just a quick one. Um, I'd just encourage you, last election, Peter Wish Wilson's office, he had the defence portfolio then, um, and they did put out quite a comprehensive rethinking of how, what a green defence force might look like, um, including some of the disaster response and humanitarian um, capacities that, that you're talking about. Um, so, yeah, I'd just encourage you to have a look at that. Uh, yeah, thanks. I'd also agree with um, a, lot, a lot of what's been said. The only additional thing I would like to mention is that there's a real problem with military forces delivering so-called humanitarian aid. Um, and most people who actually work in the humanitarian sector in areas of tension or whatever um, would, um, would say they don't want military forces um, because that uh, separation between what the military does and what the humanitarian sector does is crucial. Because if adversaries in a particular situation don't know, if, well, this hospital, um, is it just a hospital or is a hidden military agenda there? And it creates serious problems for genuine humanitarians. This is a real problem for MSF um, coming under fire because um, adversaries don't know whether... Um, uh, whether the agenda is purely humanitarian, uh, how many um, how many enemy are, are they treating, how many enemy are there. So the humanitarian military need to be separated in areas of conflict. Bogan, um, I shall f focus on where I might say something useful, I think. Uh, maybe. Um, I agree about um, neutrality. Um, I think that's um, that's worth looking at, and there was work done on that in the 1980s. Um, yeah, which you probably why you raised the question. Yeah, um, yeah, I think it's worth at least debating. So I would I would I would support that. Hmm, he was coming to that view. I think yeah. Um, Bougainville, I won't comment on that. Um, Deb, I, I think that's a little complex in my view, um, and I agree about. Um, encouraging connections between South and North Korean people. I think that's critical at the moment. It comes back to the issue of involving local people rather than assuming that we, at a distance, have all the answers. Yeah, I might just respond to the, the intervention question um, on Bougainville. 
um, in particular. So that was framed as an unarmed uh, response to that conflict. But um, the Australian military kept a Navy ship full of arms just offshore, um, which I think if you're considering the role that we played in that um, is something that needs to be deeply questioned, um, particularly when you compare that to the response from New Zealand who were actually unarmed and the different roles that they played. And also um, in relation to that, I guess, similar to what Adam was saying, yes, we played a role in that intervention, um, Australian resource companies also played a role in fueling that conflict, as did um, as did our own um, interests as a country. Um, and so, I think unpacking those threads when you're considering that kind of response is is crucial. Thank you for the questions. I, I know a little bit about East Timor, um, Timor Leste. Uh, I know that the intervention, well, the occupation. Um, was given the go-ahead from the United States Ford government and uh, with the blessings of the Australian government. Uh, that was under Whitlam. And uh, it was because the country was deemed too poor and weak to be able to uh, support itself as an independent nation, which is a sort of colonial paternalistic view in my opinion. But uh, given the way the Indonesian occupation went, um, of course, some kind of um, uh, progress towards Timorese independence was certainly wanted. Um, and I don't know if uh, it, uh, the intervention was, was, it was a kind of uh, opportunistic uh, approach taken by the Howard government. And uh, the way it's behaved, the, the Australian government's behaved since in terms of the, the, uh, the gas fields is, is appalling. So I wouldn't say that Australian... I don't know enough about that history, but I'd, I'd just say go back to the history. Look at why, what we, what our stakes are in that country, and 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 be you know incredibly uh, scrutinise that with incredible scepticism, because those are the things that are the drivers behind these these governments in their behaviour, not some kind of humanitarian ethos. In terms of the um, arm neutrality, I think that. Yes, the logic of domination is is uh, dominant and and uh, pervasive, and neutrality would be a, a a wonderful position, if not ethical, and it would certainly uh, enforce some kind of Australian identity that was proud of its ability to make its own decisions and negotiate on its own terms. Um, I think that would be a really commendable position to take, but then the implications are some say that we would therefore need some kind of um, security defence capability that would be able to resist any kind of attack from a, a modern superpower, so a huge amount of investment in military. But then you could counter it by saying that diplom diplomacy is much uh, much more effective if you're clever and if you're uh, preventive. So, yep. Thank you very much, Mary. Uh, I really enjoyed your talk, by the way. Thank you very much. It was fantastic. Um, uh, imperialism is not uh, over, so it hasn't exceeded its use. It hasn't gone stale, though it's very rotten. Um, I'd say that it's the dominant modus operandi of the superpowers, and I'm still not sure about what China and Russia are promising in terms of multipolarity and whether they really mean distributed power or uh, and uh, and several uh, nodes or centres of power distributed throughout a system. 
it would be a wonderful thing if they did. But uh, just having watched the way Chinese and Russian statesmanship has been playing out in the international arena, they are so much more sophisticated and civilised in their discourse and their engagement. And they put the US and Australia, uh, the ally, their traditional allies, to shame. There are countries who are allies, Japan, South Korea, who are playing two games. So they're negotiating with Russia and China at the same time, but clearly because their interests are involved. And they're much more clever than, than in my opinion, than, than our Australian approach. But it's a, it's a hopeful thing that we have another narrative at least. Um, thank you, Mary. I'll just make a, a quick comment and completely agree with you that um, the time has come to stand up to the United States. And when Donald Trump uh, was elected, a lot of people thought, surely, surely now is the time. And then Turnbull comes out with a statement that we are still joined at the hip to this country. And I think that phrase that Turnbull um, made, we re don't like to be nasty, but we really should rub his nose in it. We are really joined at the hip to this man in Washington, seriously. And is that all you can advocate for Australian foreign policy, that we're joined at the hip to a country led by that man? So I think we need to use, use that phrase. Sorry. Sorry? Oh, um, Catherine's reminded me of IPAN Independent and Peaceful Australia Network, Kath. Um, yeah, so if you want to know a bit more about IPAN, have a chat to Catherine over here in the break. But um, look, thank you so much. It was a really great um, session and I feel bad that there were so many questions that we didn't get to, but um, I think that's a demonstration of how interesting your um, talks were and also how people are so keen to get engaged in this issue. So come and have a talk to these folk during the lunch break and thank you so much to Sue, Flick and Adam. <laughs>